Welcome, this is Lisa, where we go inside addiction to raise your level of consciousness. So welcome Jane to the Lisa podcast. On this podcast, we go inside addiction. I just wondered what your sort of journey was to get to where you are today. Um, Well, I don't think I realised I was an addict, actually. I was definitely um, a food addict and I think it's something that I... You know, it's got to look at me. I'm still struggling with. I'm still, I'm still a work in progress, and I had no idea until I started to tackle it um, how much resistance I had, how hard it was for me, and actually how I used food and other things to self-medicate to take the edge off yeah. difficult feelings. In fact, it was I didn't even realise what difficult feelings were really underpinning my overeating until I tried to stop. Yeah, so I'm wondering how you got some of that kind of self-awareness. Uh, well, actually, I got um, a diabetes diagnosis and um, and I I didn't want to go blind, I didn't want to lose my limbs, which I know are all complications of diabetes. So it was a kind of medical reason, so I thought I've, I've really got to try and lose weight. Um, I think I kidded myself that I was fat and happy and I didn't care and I didn't really want to have to... Um, fit in with society's expectations and you know I kind of deluded myself really and I I wasn't unhappy but I was living in this um, sort of state of delusion and ignorance I think not realising that I was living a life where I I couldn't stop and I didn't realise how much of a struggle it was going to be to, to stop until I tried um, but it was definitely the medical stuff that kick-started the change. Yeah, so it was almost as if you had this like mask on of this facade of being happy and being fat and that you presented to the world, and then you kind of had this medical diagnosis that kind of made that mask kind of dissolve. Yeah, yeah, very much. And it wasn't, and I realised it wasn't just um, food I was addicted to. You know, um, I heard a really interesting lecture. Uh, a few weeks ago by a man that described an addictive personality as somebody with a more, more, more button. And I thought, oh my God, yes, that's me with virtually everything. More, more, more. If, you know, if 10 feel good, then why not have 20? I feel even more, more, more. Fantastic. (laughs) And, you know, and it does feel quite good because you get that instant hit, that instant gratification. And I'm all about, well, it's a pleasure principle thing, isn't it? Um... But once it starts really impacting on your life and your health and other people's lives. The other thing is that um, I've got four children and uh, I lost my husband a few years ago. And the reality is that if something happens to me, my children, well, all of them would have lost both, both parents, but my younger ones would be orphaned. Yeah. And it's one thing, you know, crossing the road and getting knocked over when you didn't plan it. Oh, that's why many people plan it. But it's another thing, doing something, bringing a condition on yourself that you don't have to. Yeah. So I almost felt like a bit conscious decision that could lead to, yeah, your kids not having yeah. parents. Yeah. And that was like a hard reality to sort of face. Yeah, very much so. And I realised that a lot of my behaviour could really impact my kids quite you know badly yeah so that's what was kind of like underlying this sense of like more 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 um no the more 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 was about meeting unmet childhood needs for me which i only really realized through a kind of hardcore personal growth journey in therapy because as you know i thought when 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 you're trying to be a counsellor you have to have your own therapy and um, I think part of that therapeutic process was realising just how many unmet needs I had, how much abandonment stuff I had, how much lost stuff I had. And, of course, when you feel lost, you're in deficit. So when you're in emotional deficit, what do you try and do? You try and fill it up. I filled it up with biscuits and drink and anything that felt like it was doing the job. And it didn't really do the job. It did a good impression of feeling like it was doing the job. But it wasn't really because you can't meet an emotional need with anything other than an emotional solution. No amount of biscuits are going to help that. Yeah. I mean, 
what comes up for me is this guy called Greg Bear who's written a book called Real Love. I'm not sure if you've read it. No. But it's really interesting. He talks about the concept of like imitation love and real love. And oh, oftentimes okay. we seek real love, but then we fill it up, we fill ourselves up with imitation love. Um, and yeah, that sounds a bit like what you did and what many of us do in addiction. I think he stole my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have to have a word with him. Greg? Yeah. Greg? <laughs> So tell me a bit more about that idea of like the balance between real love and imitation love. Well, you know, I'm not an expert on on that subject, um, but I can tell you that I don't think I have very much experience of what childhood real love feels like. I didn't I didn't know my parents? I was adopted, and. Um, Adopted children, I think, always have that sense of attack, those attachment issues. It doesn't matter how nice a family is that you're adopted into. And I was adopted into a family who really did their best, but like most of us have, have our own issues, um, like Philip Larkin said. Um, and um, so I had plenty of emotional deficits. You know, the four A's that they talk about in... Uh, transactional analysis, um, affirmation, um, affection, approval. I can't remember the other one. <laughs> but I don't think that I had those. Yeah. So that's what I was looking for, those fundamental, basic, basic feelings of being validated. I did not have them. And I didn't know how to validate myself. So I just used other behaviour yeah yeah to get that validation yeah and I'm wondering you know how did you sort of you said you went through therapy I'm wondering how you kind of met those needs that you missed out on as a kid what how did I meet them in a destructive way or how did you start to like untangle the mess of meeting them in a destructive way to then get to a place of meeting them in perhaps a healthier way God, that's a really hard question because when I look back I realise how much of my behaviour was destructive I self-sabotaged everything from education to relationships um, yeah I, I, I blew every opportunity that was presented to me um, I think I had this fundamental really deep belief that I didn't deserve it which goes back actually to what we were talking about earlier off podcast about the negative self-talk we give ourselves um so yeah self-sabotaging um lots of really inappropriate damaging relationships uh overeating drinking um the one thing that I haven't struggled with is my friendships. I've always been able to make and maintain and have a long history with with friendships. And actually my friendships have really been a the thing that has sustained and helped me survive. Um, and then of course on top of that early childhood loss, I later had two other losses where my first and second husband died. Not on the same day, you know, I didn't <laughs> didn't kill him or anything. They both they both both died. So they were you know, loss triggers other losses. So I've had a yeah. series of quite a lot of losses underpinned by unmet needs. Yeah. When you've got that kind of loss, well, for me anyway, I think I just sought to fill it. So your question about how did I untangle it, I think before I even could begin to untangle it, Luke, I had to realise that I was doing it. Yeah, you had to realise that it existed. Yeah. And sometimes when we start therapy, it's kind of like for one reason over here, then we dig deep and go down and we're like, actually, it's for this mountain over here that we didn't realise. Yeah, you're so right. And the other thing was I was a real um, blamer. I was a real victim. I spent so much of my life, oh, it's my parents' fault. It's my adoptive parents' fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's the government's fault. It's this, it's that. It was always everybody else's fault. could never, ever take any real responsibility. I, uh, it took a long time for me to sort of grow up emotionally and realise that, in a lot of these, a lot of the chaos, the common denominator was was me. Yeah. And yeah, I had been dealt a raw hand, but what was I going to do? Always go through life moaning about the raw hand I've been dealt. 
Yeah. Said, That's not going to change anything. Yeah. The only person that could change things was me. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and actually realising that you've got that responsibility over your life simultaneously is a bit terrifying because you think, oh, fucking hell, you know, no one's going to come and rescue me. I've got to do it myself. But it's also liberating because you realise you've got so much more power yeah. than you ever thought you had. Yeah. So that's, that's I suppose, where my personal growth journey started, realising that I had to take control and realising that I could take control. Yeah, because I think that's yeah true that that gap between you know being a victim and taking responsibility um, to that higher level of consciousness. I'm wondering if that was like an exact moment, or did you hit like a, a rock bottom um, or anything like that? Um, there was something last year that that triggered it, a, re- a relationship actually, um, that caused me to realise that I had really significant attachment issues, really significant ones, um, because when I wasn't using food to meet my needs I realised I had a bit of a shifted addiction and actually I started using something else um, getting my needs met emotionally Um, so when food wasn't there to mask my symptoms all this need and pain and longing and pining and yearning for love um, and approval an affirmation really welled up and it was sort of sitting there waiting for a target I think yeah um and um in the absence of food I I still used other things so that's when I realized that it was a problem that I had to I had to address yeah and I think that's yeah like very common in addiction and I know for me personally that sense of like when you stop using one drug or one thing to get your needs your needs met, you then look for something else, and it's like that kind of uh, yeah gremlin comes out, and you like searches for something else in this vicinity to like take hold of in a sense. So for you, Luke, when you were using um, and you stopped using one substance, was it a deliberate seeking out of something else, or did something else just un you know? present itself to you and then you thought oh shit I'm using that now um I think it was like a gradual process so I'd say I realized I got like a lot of my drugs met through one drug and then when I started to work on myself and stop doing that drug um I then started to learn to meet some of my own needs yeah but then I also subconsciously the the overflow so say I was able to meet 20% of my needs the other 80% were getting met through like other things like food for example right. or smoking cigarettes yeah um and then as I slowly started to work on myself more in therapy that slowly got less and less and less in mm-hmm. a sense yeah so I feel like it was like definitely a process Has it taken you a long time yeah, Sam was a work in progress. Yeah, me had, too. Like over seventy counselling sessions. I'm still going. Yeah. Um, I think it's, me it's too. always a work in progress. Um, and it's almost like when you go to the gym, the minute you get you learn to lift one bar, you put more weights on. That's kind of like the gym of life. As you get to one level, mm-hmm. you get to go to the next level, and the next level, and the next level. Mm-hmm. And when we think about our human needs, the ability to have like growth and contribution at the top. Um, growing is is important it's you know if you look at nature everything grows and contributes or it's taken out of the future food chain it's quite black and white in a sense so our kind of mission in life or purpose for being here is to grow and contribute is to always put more weight on the bar and to always push and i think managing that balance between like gratitude of how far you've come and then growing to the next level that's almost like a battle as well yeah yeah um, it's funny you mentioned nature. It's something that I. It's an example that I use with clients actually, um, because as much as we have to push ourselves and recognise when we need to move out of our comfort zones, um, there's this this idea about being kind to ourselves um, matters as well. Because if you had a if you had a a rosebud, you know, beautiful little rosebud, you wouldn't start yelling at it. Why the hell aren't you a rose yet? Hurry up! It's not going to do anything. Um, so we have to recognise the growth process in, in ourselves as well because I think the second we start giving ourselves a hard time, an unrealistic hard time, um, we have to realise that things happen in their own time. This rosebud will unfold in its own time. Yeah. Um, but we do have to tend it 
and we have to tend ourselves yeah. and, and each other. Yeah, and I think that's a lovely analogy, that idea. That I only use lovely analogies. Yeah, it's compulsory. <laughs> compulsory part lovely, of my conversation. Lovely analogies are compulsory. Sometimes no. I go and say something and I think that's not lovely enough. I'm, <laughs> I'm just not going to say it. <laughs> but no, yeah, I think analogies are amazing. And I think one that I always used to say to myself is, Luke, you haven't been buried, you've been planted. We'll do our next next session at the allotment, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lovely analogies. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I always just remind myself when things are really hard, when I feel like there's a lot of growth and a lot of emotional weight on my shoulders, that yeah, I've been planted and I'll blossom. And uh, but I love into one in your analogy um, of the sense of like stop making yourself rush, you know, stop shouting at the rosebud, going, yeah. you should be better. And when clients say to us in therapy, oh yeah, like, I'm making progress, how fast can I see results and stuff? Uh, I'm going to use that now. I'm going to say, when you think about a rosebud, you don't uh, sit there and go... Not without my permission. <laughs> Written <copyrighted>. permission. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a copyright. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Every yeah. word I've said is... Good. In fact, you can't use one word that I've ever said. <laughs> yeah, after the episode, I'll get your written permission. Yeah. So Exactly. So, yeah, that's brilliant. But yeah, no, I think that that's important to remember to like, almost in a sense, give up the need for control, the need for something to happen. Oh yeah. Now that idea about surrendering, bloody hell, that's been a big one for me, to surrender. So tell me a bit more about that. Well, I I read a while ago, um, uh, one of these memes, you know, that said. Accept every situation as though you'd chosen it for yourself. And I thought, initially, what a bloody stupid thing to say. You know, if I'm under a, under a car with my legs crushed, I'm not really, oh, I'm glad I chose this situation. But I think what it means is that actually, if you don't resist, if you don't try and paddle upstream when the water's going downstream, you actually have more potential to recognise the opportunity for growth. Because... And so acceptance, the art of letting go, has been a big deal for me. And something that I wrote about a while ago was that it's easier to have something taken from an open palm than it is prized out of a clenched fist. Um, And I really do... In fact, that's why I've got that photograph on my website of the open palm and the bird. Um, Because there's something about letting go, letting be, surrender, acceptance that it's not passive at all, it's actually powerful and liberating and it frees you from the um, it frees you from the idea of having expectations of outcomes. Um, there's that lovely story about the the Zen master um, when a pupil goes to him and asks for a, a lesson in Zen and the Zen master makes him a cup of tea and he, he um, just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring the tea into the cup and the cup's overflowing and the people says well why are you doing I don't know whoa I don't know if they do say whoa in Zen but um but he said what are you doing why are you what the cup's overflowing why are you still pouring and the Zen master said um well this cup is like you it's full there's no so we have to keep ourselves kind of empty of expectations in order to be filled with the right stuff. God, that was a long waffle, wasn't no. it? <laughs> no, that's lovely. And I think that idea of the cup is amazing in that sense of, you know, like you say, remove the expectations, the guilt, the shame, the yeah. low-level emotions. And then yeah. once we start to fill that up with, like, the love, real love, not imitation love from drugs and stuff like that, yeah. um, we can then learn to give from our overflow of all the love and affection and care we're giving to ourselves. Oh, overflow, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like that because it's not only, um, it's not only, that's my impression of a cup, by the way, um, it's not only that we're full of expectations, but we're full of self-beliefs as well. We're full of what we think we are. We label ourselves, we categorise ourselves. We've got self-limiting beliefs. Oh, I won't do that. Oh, I'll never earn that. Oh, she's the pretty one. Oh, I'm the fat one. I'm the so-and-so one. He's the what's-it one. Um, we've got these expectations and they really, really limit how we um, move forward. In fact, we were talking earlier, weren't we, about the things that we say to ourselves. We wouldn't, well, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't dream of 
going up to one of my friends and saying, uh, you know what, you're, you're a bit useless, you're a bit you're a bit fat, in fact, you're a bit shit, you'll never amount to anything. Oh, I don't even know why you're bothering trying to learn the guitar, you'll never do it. Sounds bloody awful. But we say that to ourselves. And the longest relationship we ever have is with ourselves. And we, we tell ourselves we're crap and rubbish all day long. So changing our self-talk is a fundamental way of changing how we can respond to the world because it's my belief that we re that that the way we see ourselves underpins the way we respond to the world um and if we think we're all a bit crap then that's gonna that's gonna really direct our choices yeah and i wonder how your kind of relationship to your identity from being like in addiction to being like a even becoming a counsellor all those kind of labels we have how has your identity changed and what's your relationship been like with your identity oh look uh that's a really good and difficult question i think i see myself probably as more fragile than i thought i was but with more capacity to manage it um, I don't think I realised how damaged I was until I started realising how damaged I was. Yeah. yeah. Which sounds like a weird thing to say. But I thought, you know, most of us think we're all right, don't we? Yeah. Until we start unpeeling and unpicking our stuff. And we think, well, bloody hell. I don't know about you, but often I think I've dealt with something and then, oh, you can't ever be complacent because I'm like that old crap rears its head and you've got to deal with that as well yeah yeah it's almost like things come up and again come back coming back to the gym analogy things come up um you process that kind of thing and then you get more weight on the bar you get another lesson life gives it to you more um and you're like yeah bro i've dealt with this you know i'm i'm will never say the word complete but i'm complete I've, i'll fix that and then you know six months a year later you're like, oh shit it's happening again and oftentimes things do come um, out of like left field um, and we do sort of like you know not sort of suspect stuff that's why it's good to go in therapy and get the self-awareness and uh, look under every single rock and, and try and gain that sense of who am I what's going on what is this experience what is my experience and to analyze that experience so do you think that as a how would you refer to yourself? Addict in recovery, ex-addict. What would you give you, or would you even give yourself a label? Um, yeah, I mean, I've worked through like a powerful exercise a long time ago around my identity um, in like a business seminar, or it's more of a psychological seminar to be honest. Oh. Um, and it was about like rebuilding your identity. So you wrote down all the labels that you had. Okay. Some of mine would have been like, addict, worthless, not good enough. You realised they're kind of stuck on with Velcro. And then okay. you kind of get to choose a new identity. Um, and I kind of like built one which I like. Um, and it's kind of like an I am statement. And now I'll say it now. It's I am an extreme entrepreneur who stays calm in the storms of life whilst trusting in the flow of the river and helping uh, and committing. Wait, let me go again. Uh, yeah, I'm an extreme entrepreneur who stays calm in the storms of life whilst um, I can't remember it. But whilst committing to help others, uh, while committing to being authentic and vulnerable to help others um, by example. So, oh. yeah, let me go again. I'm an extreme entrepreneur who stays calm in the storms of life while trusting the flow of the river, whilst committing to being authentic and vulnerable to help lead others by example. So it's like an identity you choose. So I'm an extreme entrepreneur. I stay calm in the storms of life and trust in the flow of the river. I love I'm that. committed to being authentic and vulnerable to help lead others by example. Um, and when I think about myself, am I a counsellor? Am I like uh, whatever label? Um, we pick up loads, father, son, all of those little things, family member, boyfriend. I always come back to my I am statement and I think that's, you know, who I am. Um, I, lo I love that. I love that because it, it weaves its way through all the other labels. Yeah. You know, it's deeper. And more meaningful yeah and I think it keeps me focused and even where I went from being like an addict or a businessman or an entrepreneur all those labels and I became a counsellor and I became picked up other labels that I may have put on myself with Velcro like emotional mm. um, like 
more feminine, embracing more feminine energy, being more connected with that kind of emotions and stuff, uh-huh. um, and removing some of like the toxic masculinity and all that sort of stuff. Having that I am statement allowed me to, yeah, be able to try on different labels and and take on new labels without being so attached to them, without weaving them into my way of being, and have that sense of like perspective and almost a sense of like understanding they are on with Velcro and this is who I am. So you've got some stuff about your your past and your story on your on your website, haven't you? In the about me stuff, Do, would you ever disclose in a session? Um, about about your past um would that ever be would that ever be relevant well i think it comes back to like the ethical code and beneficence you know yeah will it benefit the client to tell the client mm. am i telling them from a place of ego oh i'm better than you blah 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 so i think it depends on what's happening in that moment i guess i'd go with like my my gut or my emotions and my intuition and think you know what's going on that here will it benefit the client I think questions are obviously tricky ones as well. Yeah. When someone says to you, oh, so have you been through addiction? What's your story? Yeah, um, that's kind of what I was yeah, thinking. thinking. So, yeah, I would uh, disclose, like, yeah, kind of as much as I feel comfortable at mm. the time. I feel comfortable exposing everything, but in terms of, like, the impact on the client, disclosing through the lens of the client's beneficence, mm. in a sense, rather than just saying everything, because that's what I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, so that's how I kind of gauge it, by what would kind of help the client, and also think about what answer does the client really want. Do they want the answer of my story? What By asking that question, you know, what is the answer they seek? And I think that's something I would consider. Mm. Would you ask them that? Um, yeah, like if I was that forward-thinking <laughs> in the moment, and I was that... Uh, on the ball, then yeah, I'd hope so. And I'd be like, so I'm wondering, that's very Rogerian as well. Yeah, why do you I'm wondering, want to know? yeah, why, what, what, what answer you're looking for, in mm. a sense. Yeah, what would you like me to say? Um, but I think if I had to guess, um, I would say that they're looking for certainty, certainty that they can overcome their problems. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if anyone can give them that certainty but themselves. Uh, but I think mentors and role models are really beneficial mm. and, and having something to aim for and someone who's walked that path and made the journey can be very very, very beneficial as well. well that's why i think people like um russell brand are so good in fact he's just written a, a a book about mentors um i don't know whether you read his book on recovery yeah uh, I, I thought that was brilliant yeah i thought it was really good yeah. really 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 good and accessible and um so i know that when i lost my husband um the thing that one of the things that helped me the most was an online um bereavement support place I didn't know any of these people but everybody had been through the same journey and there were people there you know a couple of years ahead of me saying hold on hold on it will get better you're not always going to feel like this Uh, because I didn't believe I was ever ever going to feel okay again ever I can't tell you the depth of the despair that I felt Um, and um of course, in time, I became the person that was two years down the line, encouraging people um, and reassuring them that they weren't going to be in that place forever. So the whole idea of mentorship and encouragement and somebody who's walked that path, giving you that kind of reassurance, because you can't give certainty, can we? Because the clients have to be active. We all have to be active participants in our own recovery. No one's going to be our champion. No one's going to come and rescue us. Yeah. But we can certainly be encouragers and facilitators. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one thing I try and remind myself is that, you know, you don't have to, like, have written the whole book or complete the whole book. You just have to be, like, one chapter ahead. Yeah. And you just, you never have to be, like, perfect. I don't think I'm ever going to be, like, the perfect recovered addict ever. But just, yeah, the fact that I'm not, you know, perfect doesn't mean I can't help people along their journey Mm. and that kind of helped me stay humble remember you know I do have value to provide I can help clients and show them like some kind of path and and help them in a sense. It's interesting this idea of um, disclosure actually because um, you know you do see a a lot of counsellors online doing blogs sharing their story being authentic and real and vulnerable Um, but then you've got the other idea of counselling as being very bounded and not sharing anything um, so I just wonder where you where you sit on 
on that that kind of perspective. Yeah, on that boundary. So I guess I see it um, yeah, more towards the, di- the, the disclosure part, yeah. especially when it comes to addiction and stuff like that. I don't like putting my address or what I had for dinner or like no. stuff like that, um, or necessarily my own therapy sessions. Um, but yeah, I do disclose my story and what I've been through and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and again, I think it helps clients have that empathy. If you don't really know someone or know anything about them, I think it's hard to, to make that kind of connection. In a yeah, sense. I agree. I have uh, quite, a, quite a few clients come and see me who've been bereaved because they know my story. Um, I have clients seen with eating issues because they know my story. Um, and I think actually that can be quite helpful um, yeah. if you think somebody has walked that path. Yeah. And I, I love that, the idea that you haven't got to have written the whole book, you've just got to have some of the tools to help to, to help others. Because we're never going to write the whole book, are we? Yeah, and it comes back to those expectations that we like, perhaps have when we're kids that we're meant to be perfect. Again, with like transactional analysis, the drivers, the be perfect driver, the be strong. I've got to be perfect and know everything before I can help anyone. Oh, I've yeah. got to take the degree, then the master's, then the two masters and I've got to have four masters and I've got to do the trauma course and this course and that course and you end up like chasing a mirage that doesn't even exist and you haven't even helped anyone and that's a kind of avoidance anyway isn't it yeah you know it's it's saying oh I can't do that until that's happened oh no well that's happened but now I've got to wait for so and so and actually if we really strip away what's going on it's a form of self-sabotage a form of avoidance yeah a form of not having to do something yeah um I wonder what that's underpinned by. Fear? Fear of failure? Fear, yeah. It's funny you mentioned about TA. Well, it's not funny, but you know. Um, but you, I've, I've, I've forgotten what they're called, but there's there are different behaviours. One of them is catch me if you can, cops and robbers. That was definitely mine. You mm-hmm. know, sort of, yeah, wheeling, dealing, getting away with things. Yeah. Um, doing 40 in a 30. Yeah, what always looked like pushing the boundaries yeah. of life. Acting out. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Always. And of course, my my stuff's coupled with because um, I have got a mental health condition. I have got bipolar, so for me, learning to trust my own judgment has been quite difficult. Because sometimes I think, oh, is this brilliant idea really a brilliant idea, or is it coming through the filter, my bipolar filter? So I have to work on that as well. And of course you have some impulse control and some reckless behaviour and some, you know, some stuff that goes hand in hand with having having this. Um, so that's just an additional um, difficulty sometimes. But often it's not that bad, you know. Um, most of the time it's not, it's not that bad. It's just something I've got to be really mindful of. Yeah, and how have you managed those two? And I think a lot of people ask the question, you know, which one do you solve or work on first? Is it the addiction or is it like the bipolar? How, how, how has that been? Mm. Well, actually, when I finally got my diagnosis, it was a relief because I'd had all this really extreme manic behaviour and I just thought I couldn't manage my myself properly. I thought everybody else... I just You just assume, don't you, that everybody's got these feelings but other people don't go crazy with it. And so somehow they're better... They're better people fundamentally. Um, so when 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 I finally got that diagnosis, I was for the first time ever able to realise that there wasn't actually something wrong with me. It wasn't flawed as a person. I actually had something which made my behaviour difficult to control. And of course, once you realise that, then you can start to take control and, and, and implement strategies and start to use tools. Same with my son. My youngest son's got dyslexia. And for most of his school life, he's believed he's stupid. When he got his dyslexia diagnosis, it was easier for him because he realised he had a condition and we could work with it. So in terms of what comes first, I don't know the answer. That's a very long response to a non-answer, isn't it? Certainly knowing I've got bipolar has made it easier, um, but it doesn't change. It's not a get-out-of-jail card, and I still have to address uh, behaviour. But sometimes it's difficult. Yeah. And what are some of the tools and tactics you've put in place to help with that behaviour? Okay, so one of them is 
learning to respond rather than react. I've always been quite explosive, you know, so not in a negative way, uh, impulsive rather than explosive, actually. Um, so situational happiness. Yes, a brilliant idea. Brilliant. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've signed up to things because I think it's a brilliant idea. And then, thank God for the cooling off period. Um, I do the same thing, by the way. Do you? <laughs> I'm very, like, impulsive. Any salesmen out there, don't contact me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't need another car. Yeah. don't need another holiday. I don't need another credit card. Yeah. It all just feels like such a brilliant idea at the time. Yeah, no, definitely. I give no thought to how I'm going to pay it off. Yeah, no, it's just there is that impulse. It just, is. Yeah, that's brilliant. The excitement. Um, yeah. 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 So you so you respond instead of react. I try to respond rather than just react because I think when you when you respond, a you get a choice about how you re, uh, behave in response to something. It's just that little bit less impulsive. It just buys you a little bit of time, and that can give you just enough control to perhaps not get yourself in trouble. So that's something that I do. The other thing is that I've got uh, two or three friends that are all on mental alert. And if they see me going mental, they have to look after me. And they're brilliant at it. Yeah. So, you know, I love my friends. Yeah. I really love my friends and they really look after me. And I hope I look after them as well. Not in a rescuing sense, in a healthy friendship way. Yeah. Um, and they do they do really take care of me. And they well, that can... sounds like a really good thing to have in place. Yeah. And what kind of relationship do you have with your friends? Really good, really healthy. It's the it's the area in my life that's probably the healthiest. My um, friendships. Do you have any like tips or tricks for anyone out there that to to build healthy friendships or what a healthy friendship is? Ah, actually, a lot of people struggle with this. Yeah. I think you have to make some effort. I think if you don't get an instant reply to a text, you can't always assume it's because someone doesn't like you anymore. I think that you can't just wait to be invited to things. You know, sometimes it's good to initiate things, to invite people out. Um, and to be interested in people. I suppose doing this job, I, I really am interested in people. I love asking people about, about themselves and I've always liked asking people about themselves. Um, so I think, yeah, being interested in people. And a really good tip to learn to be interested in people is to read biographies and autobiographies um, yeah. because then you get a sense of going under the surface of yeah. a person's life. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what kind of autobiographies have you um, written or uh, read? <laughs> well, I have written one, but I strongly suggest you all start with mine. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, on Amazon. Shameless plug. Yeah, um, it's not called Shameless Plug. No, no, it probably it, should be. <laughs> It's called Song of the Sea, yes. I'm saying it in that voice because I don't like the title. Okay. I thought it was going to be this sort of um, meaningful, emotional, literary tomb, but actually it's like an extended Take a Break article. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. You know, um, lightweight reading. <laughs> um, what other biographies um, do you sort of recommend for people to know so they can get under the hood of... of like humans and well I guess people interested. I guess if they're interested in people I mean I think whether it's a celebrity a scientist a doctor um, I don't think it necessarily has to be somebody really well known um, but just if you can't think of anybody to, to read an autobiography for just uh, about just buy, buy a book by somebody you're interested in. Obviously it's going to be edited, the chances are it's going to be ghost-written, but you'll still get a sense of character beyond the superficial. And mm. I think it helps give you insight into a person. And then you can start thinking about, oh, other people must have this depth as well. Because we all have. We all know that once you scratch the surface of anybody's lives, there's a story to tell. Yeah, and a lot of people do walk around in life and life and present each other with these masks that we wear um, and it is almost about learning to yeah, take these masks off so sure. how do you manage that with your with your friends with meeting your friends um, yeah how did you meet them what's that journey been like I suppose my friendships have been things that where I haven't been well with the exception of one one person who I had a big falling out with well it wasn't actually a falling out but the friendship ended and it was really devastating to me 
um, but that's the only person I've ever ever had that with um, all my others I've never been rejected and I don't reject people either um, I'm very lucky with my friendship group I think that we're very accepting and supportive of each other um, and we don't really gossip about each other so there's a lot of trust there um, so taking the mask off, I'm not scared to be vulnerable with my friends because they've never given me any reason to fear being vulnerable because they've only ever loved me. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. With them, you know, I'm the version of myself I want to be. But in other areas where I've got insecurities, I've got masks. Yeah, and I think it comes back to... Well, you should do counselling. LAUGHTER <laughs> Uh, yeah, luckily I am, yeah. Yeah. Call my number to counselling, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, so it makes me wonder, because I think oftentimes as kids we crave the unconditional love, um, and when we're brought into the world uh, as a baby, it's like if you hold my hand when you cross the road, you get love, and if you don't hold my hand when you cross the road, you don't get love, mm. and love kind of comes uh, becomes conditional. And oftentimes, I think from our friends, we do kind of get that unconditional love, and because there's not all the intimacy involved, yeah, that makes a big difference. I think yeah. intimacy is another, you know, five years in therapy, <laughs> but another Only big five. subject. <laughs> Intimate relationships, yeah. I mean, they're they're hard. Yeah, because they they in an intimate relationship is where you expose your emotional, your physical vulnerabilities. You reveal yourself. A huge personal personal risk. I'll say that again. We reveal ourselves at huge personal risk, or potentially huge personal risk. Yeah. Because if you show who you really are, and then that gets rejected. Mm-mm-mm. That's pretty terrible, isn't it? I, I, actually, I don't, I don't think people realise that breakups are as devastating as they really are. Yeah. I think a relationship breakup. Um, is one of the worst things that can happen to a person personally. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, because it's a rejection of your authentic self. Yeah, and I think that that's often, terrifying. Yeah, and how have you dealt with some of that terrifyingness in the past? <laughs> Very well. <laughs> it, I guess it's a decision. It's a decision to enter into it fully and the balance between accepting you know back to our empty bowl I think I'm a work in progress with this yeah. I think I'm a work in, I don't think I've got an answer for you yeah. um, because while something feels frightening it doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do yeah yeah and I think oftentimes with relationships when we start out on a journey, whether in addiction or not, the addiction, we sort of solve that on the journey to becoming our true self. Yeah. And then kind of relationships, if you're not in one, then relationships kind of with yourself and with other people are like a big challenge. It's always like you have two broken children trying to live as adults. It's always that battle of unmet needs and met needs and transactions and all that kind of stuff always going on every day. So I think relationships always a work in progress yeah um, and just to remember you know the relationship with yourself is the most important if you go and fix that all your relationships will improve are you talking about romantic relationships or all all um, human sort of interactions so yeah well both in a sense but that statement was around like intimate relationships yeah. as in for me intimate relationships always challenging it's always like an area of growth and growing and becoming yeah, better me too um but I would also say, yeah, in my um, other relationships, with family is a massive one because your family, you know, what is it? What is the saying? Uh, love your family, choose your friends. There's always that sense of like, you know, your relationship to your family, and I think whether they're alive or not, they're with you or not, that relationship is is still important. And and what can be difficult sometimes with family, um, incidentally, I call my friends family. Um, what can be difficult is that you're ready to be a different version of yourself, either through personal growth or therapy or whatever, but the script that your family has you in makes it quite difficult for them to accept that you've changed. 
Yeah. And that can be a challenge as well. That's why I think, you know, people can um, really grow and change and be very different um, as, a, as a result of the therapeutic process. But they go, but they could be completely normal in their professional lives, and you know. But they go back to their family, and they revert to being sort of foot stomping teenagers again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think oftentimes, um, yeah, you know, they say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Being around your family a lot can have a big influence on you, yeah. and that relationship and sense of self, and again, coming back to identity, the identity they place on you is like almost a very powerful uh, and competes in many ways to the identity you place on yourself yeah yeah very much and actually um it's connected i think with that internal dialogue that we have because our um we internalize external voices don't we yeah Can i check the time no sir oh, is it how will you know if it's still running i'm not sure oh did you want to check Oh, what if it's not filming anymore? Well, that's okay. Oh, okay. It's still recording the audio. Oh. So even if the cameras aren't working. Okay. It's really interesting, this. Yeah? Yeah, I really like it. Yeah, because I'm having sort of light bulb moments as you're as we're talking. Thinking, oh, I didn't know that about my friends. Oh, I didn't know that about that. Oh, I didn't... There's something about speaking, isn't there, that processes information. Yeah. Yeah, that's why therapy is so... I think fantastic is because you hear your own voice and even active listening the the sense of us two sitting here and I'm listening to all my attention I'm not on my smartphone on whatsapp watching the football game or tv or anything it's just me and you and I'm listening to you and you're talking and you're hearing yourself talking so there's two of us hearing you talk for example or me talk as I'm talking now and yeah I think that is powerful and and the, the dots we connect when we start to hear our own words and process stuff is fascinating. Yeah, because uh, certainly when I'm with clients, and as a client myself, a number of times people say, oh, I never thought of that before. But they've actually put put the piece, the jigsaw pieces together themselves. Yeah. All, all we've done as therapists is create an environment that's safe enough for them to offload and look at their, and explore yeah. their thoughts. Yeah. You know, I had a bit of a revelation in my, I'm not going to share it, but in my own therapy this week, I've got a brilliant therapist. She's fantastic. And, um, yeah, I had a bit of a revelation. And it's it was so obvious that I thought, I've spent years in therapy. I've trained as a therapist. I do therapeutic work for hours and hours and hours every single day. Why didn't I see that before? Yeah. It was so obvious. Yeah, and oftentimes it does cause us to have these light bulb moments or breakthroughs and you're like, wait a minute, how, how did I not see this? But it's almost like it is outside of our left field and we just don't don't get it. Out of awareness. Yeah, yeah. Edge of awareness. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's kind of like the job, our job as counsellors is to bring things on the edge of clients' awareness into their awareness and kind of connect some of those dots. So Luke, what would make you stop being a therapist? Um, if I got hit by a car. Uh, okay. No. Um, what would make and me you stop chose being that situation? Therapist? No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there would be one. Um, I guess if if there was something big happened in my life, like a tragedy or something like yeah. that, and I felt like it would be unethical or I needed to go and take time for myself, um, like I know therapists, for example, who like a parent died. And then they take three weeks off and they go, like, I would do that. So if, like, a, a big tragedy happened, I'd take a month off. I'd go on a retreat. I'd do self-care. I'd do all the stuff I preach. And I'd go and have my own therapy. I'd take a holiday. I'd go and find some coaches and all that fun stuff I do normally. But I'd do that immersively. Yeah. And I would stop seeing clients um, in the easiest transition that that would, that would look like. Um, and I'll go and, you know, go into like a, a, a hole of growth and, and like a, a, an almost self-built rehab. Mm. Um, and I'll go and do all of that growth and I'll come back, like whether that's six months, a year, one month, whatever. Um, the timeline I initially came up with would probably be wrong because there'd be loads more stuff to deal with. Um, but yeah, then when I felt like I could then refill up my cup, coming back to the cup analogy, and I could then give from my overflow, then I'll start working with clients again. Um, and I feel like this is something I'll do for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, 
and I think that would be the only thing that would stop me doing it um, temporarily would be if my cap somehow got knocked over and smashed I'd have to find a way to rebuild the pieces refill up the cap then when I could conf- confidently give for my overflow then I'd re-engage mm. yeah that's a long answer yeah yeah it is but very interesting how about you um I feel that I'm in this for the long haul yeah. like you do probably um but I don't know what shape it's going to take um I'm really interested in doing workshops I'm interested I've always liked I mean I worked in PR for most of my life PR networking it's always been about relationships and I actually don't see in many ways I think see the sounds daft perhaps but I see therapy almost almost like PR because you're not selling somebody or you're not not selling somebody a product or a band or a service but you are selling them the idea and the belief that they can be different not selling them but do you know what I mean it's the same kind of skill set it's it's that encouragement it's that persuasiveness it's the there is so much more to you than you realize helping them to get a new perspective and reframe their idea of themselves yeah so so in that sense it's the same it's the same very similar skill base and tools but I'd like to do it in a wider way sometimes I'd like to do workshops I'd like to but still therapeutically yeah. so I suppose I don't mine's a long answer and it's not as interesting as yours so what would make me stop getting really excited about something else I suppose yeah. would make me stop yeah um but I can't imagine that it would be anything that isn't counselling related yeah well that's like distant or, or too much yeah. of a leap from where you are now yeah. you still like the transferable skills from like working in PR to working as a counsellor yes. there would then be like the, another level yeah um like a, a reincarnation in a sense yeah of, of an evolution of an evolution yeah perfect um yeah well on the note of evolution we are sort of coming towards the end we are do you have any kind of final thoughts or anything no but I think I'd like to do this again Excellent. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome back anytime. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. So thank you, Luke. No worries. Thanks very much for coming on the show. As always, thanks for listening. And if during this episode anything came up for you or anything was triggered inside you, please do not hesitate to reach out to one of our expert trained counsellors at insideaddiction.co.uk and we'll be able to provide you with a free consultation and a safe and confidential space to explore any of that stuff that's going on inside you or that really like came up for you as you were listening to the episode because sometimes some of the content can be triggering and it can sort of bring stuff up in us that we need to explore. So feel free to reach out. And on that note, I wish you well on your journey to serenity. Mm-hmm.